0: Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts all about Scotland's history. You'd never guessed, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel, Daniel Downey. I'm your host. I'm a stand up comedian based in Edinburgh, in Scotland. And I do a thing in the city, it's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history, and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is, that is what these series of podcasts are all about, is I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So the whole idea is that you'll listen to this, you'll learn a bit, and you'll hopefully laugh a bit as well. Uh, Today's podcast is the final instalment of the Robert... The Bruce Story, Uh, and it is about the ratification of the most important document in Scottish history, the Declaration of Arbroath, which was ratified at Arbroath Abbey on the 6th of April, 1320. Now, the Declaration of Arbroath, it it boasts that never in Scotland's history had it ever been conquered. Uh, This was obviously back in the days before we would get, you know, cuffed 3-0 off of Kazakhstan. Um, the Declaration of Arbroath, it has, it has as many quotable lines as train the fat. It is as patriotic as a Scottish darts player. And most importantly, the Declaration of Broth says that if the king makes an arse of it, then he will be replaced. The people do have the right to replace him if he is not doing his job. Now, it does say that if it's the PM's key advisor that makes an arse of it, then obviously he will remain in place after a kind of rambling hour-and-a-half press conference in a rose garden. The whole point of the declaration of our growth was to ensure strong leadership in Scotland and to protect us from the English. And yes, it was written in 1320 and not 2020. Do you know what? It's... It's really funny because it seems like in those days, people considered it quite important not to have a complete and utter fuckhead in charge of running the place. Whereas now, in like the 21st century, it seems like it is a requirement, you know, if you want to get the job, if you want to be the... Prime Minister of Great Britain or the American President, certainly. Listen, if this is the first time that you've listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, right, this is the sort of thing that you should expect, right? I'm not going to lie to you. It is a hell of a lot of Tory bashing mixed in with some Scottish history and some jobby jokes. If that sounds like fun, then you're going to enjoy it. If this is the first time that you have listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, then I suggest you go back to episode one. I don't really talk about anything particularly topical in the podcast. All the podcast episodes, they go in chronological order and they'll give you a decent bit of background into the podcast that follows it so without further ado folks here is your your podcast it's all about the declaration of our growth and uh and it brings to brings to a conclusion the the end of robert the bruce's reign i do hope that you enjoy it have fun out there and i shall see you on the other side enjoy in the aftermath of the battle of bannockburn the huge English baggage train was plundered. Now the baggage train was allegedly twenty miles long, which if that's true, it would make us it would make it the longest train that has ever been seen in Scotland. Usually a train in Scotland is about a carriage and a half, you know, and you'd 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 need about twenty miles of plunder just to be able to afford the fare to travel to Inverness, just to be able to afford the privilege of standing. For three and a half hours, which by the way is still preferable than enduring the average speed cameras that are on the A9. Now the plunder from the English baggage train, it was distributed throughout the country, it was distributed throughout Scotland, although it is worth remembering that by the time the plunder had reached Scotland, it wasn't worth as much and that is because from a strict utilitarian calculus point of view a pound spent in Croydon was far more valuable to the country than a pound spent in Strathclyde it was basically worth fuck all by the time it reached us we'd have actually been better just letting Edward II keep his 20 mile long booty anyway um Edward II he had just managed just about to escape the battlefield um, but there was still enough kind of English high-ranking prisoners such as for example the Earl of Hereford the commander of the English vanguard the vanguard sorry to allow Robert the Bruce to make an exchange for the return of his queen Elizabeth the Burg, his daughter Marjorie and his sister Mary all of whom had been in English captivity since 1306. Now the significance of the victory at Bannockburn it's probably been over-exaggerated in its importance over the years. So yes, Robert the Bruce, like I said, he managed to make an exchange for the return of his queen and his sister and his daughter, Um, and obviously the defeat of an English army in open battle was significant both politically and obviously for the morale of the Scots under Bruce. And Scotland, victory at Bannockburn, saved Scotland, but only for the moment. The defeat of the English, the English they could always generate another army, you know, they could come back at the Scots. Bannockburn would be an important point on the route to independence, but it certainly was not the end of the road. Robert the Bruce was now confirmed as king in Scotland. Nobody in Scotland was going to challenge him on that position, but the English still didn't recognise Robert the Bruce as king, and probably most importantly, Robert the Bruce was still under excommunication by the Pope. Bruce was still excommunicated by the Pope for his sacrilegious murder of his rival John Common in Greyfriars Church in Dumfries. The Pope wasn't happy about it because, you know, sacrilegious acts in churches are supposed to be reserved for priests and for bishops. But for Scotland to join the Committee of Nations, it was vital that Robert the Bruce had this ban lifted. The Pope, however, he was a good friend of England and he wasn't going to confirm the man who had deposed the English king. Scotland wanting into Europe, England stopping them. Difficult to imagine the 21st century. I know, what's even more difficult to imagine is there was actually a time when England had friends in Europe. So in the autumn of 1317, the Pope, he sent papal negotiators to broker peace between England and Scotland, but... The peace negotiations, they never got off the ground after Robert the Bruce, he refused to receive a letter that was sent from the Pope as it was addressed to Robert the Bruce, the governor of Scotland and not the king of Scotland. It was uh, kind of like getting your, your pronouns mixed up in the 14th century, you know. And so after Bannockburn, Robert the Bruce's excommunication by the Pope, it continued. After Bannockburn, Robert the Bruce, he hammered Northern England more brutally than Margaret Thatcher. His constant invasions of Northern England, they were an attempt to bully Edward II into recognising him as king by just wearing him down. It's a bit like when your big brother would sit in you, you until you admitted that he was the king and then he'd you know, tell you to stop hitting yourself. And speaking of big brothers, Robert the Bruce, he extended the theatre of war into Ireland and he threatened English control in Ireland... By installing his brother Edward as king there, although it didn't last long as Edward was defeated and killed in battle in 1319. Now, fucking over the north of England and fucking over Ireland, you would think would have made Robert the Bruce more and not less popular in London. But alas, they continued to kind of duke it out and Robert the Bruce, he continued to hit the north of England hard. Nowhere in the north of England was safe, um, except for, you know, Middlesbrough because neither side wanted that. Even York was threatened by an invasion of Scots, although in the end they ended up just, you know, going to Blackpool as they always do. In 1318, Robert the Brucey finally managed to capture Berwick Castle. This was after years of failed attempts at taking the castle, the first of which had occurred in 1313, uh, and it was foiled by a barking dog, meaning that a barking dog is a higher-rated defender in the north of England than Phil Jones is. Now, the pounding of Edward II's kingdom in the north, it was enough to to force him into a two-year truce, which lasted between 1319 and 1321. And this respite allowed Robert the Bruce the opportunity to concentrate on diplomatic efforts on the continent and the lifting of his excommunication by the Pope. Scotland's response was to draft the most important document in Scottish history, the Declaration of Arbor Oath. In March 1320, Robert Bruce called the Parliament at new battle and a draft letter was drawn up that asked the Pope to put pressure on Edward II to recognise Robert Bruce as King of Scotland. Now, the letter was penned entirely in Latin, so it was kind of like a a Boris Johnson public health announcement except far easier to interpret and understand. And it was penned by Bernard de Linton, the Abbot of Arbroath and Chancellor of Scotland. This was the man who had carried the monimusculary reliquary, I always struggle with that word, at Bannockburn. This is the 8th century casket that contained the relics of St Columba. Now he probably didn't kill many people carrying around a box of old bones, so they decided it was time for him to make himself useful and to draft the Declaration of Arbroath, which was affirmed at Arbroath Abbey on the 6th of April 1320. The declaration of our growth began by recounting the origin myth of the Scots, which if you remember from the second podcast I did, the one in the first King of Scotland basically says that we are all descended from Egypt, you know, because nothing says Egyptian quite like pasty white aggressive ginger people, you know. It uh, the Declaration of Our Broth, it listed the hundred and thirteen Scottish kings who had ruled the land in an unbroken succession. It referred to the conversion of the Scots to Christianity by one of the leading apostles, Saint Andrew, the patron saint of Scotland, who is the brother of the Blessed Saint Peter, which is a very Scottish thing. Only, only in Scotland would we make the brother of the successful guy the patron saint of our nation. Do you know, we may as well just make Jamie Murray patron saint of Scotland. Now, the Declaration of Arbroath also declared that uh, the Scots are a free and conquered people whom the Picts, Britons or Vikings had not managed to conquer. It lambasted Edward I as posing as a wolf in sheep's clothing, which, to be fair, is actually considered pretty sexy in Arbroath. And the Declaration of Arbroath, it hailed Robert Bruce as Scotland's saviour, but importantly, it also said that should Robert Bruce become an ineffective king, should he allow Scotland to be subjected to English rule or even be deemed to not living up to the expectations the people have placed upon him, then they have the right to replace him. And by far and away, the most famous passage from the Declaration of Arbroath reads as follows. We are bound both by law and by his, by that I mean Robert Bruce, Robert Bruce's, merits that our freedom may still be maintained and by him, come what may, we mean to stand. Yet if he should give up what he has begun and should seek to make us or our kingdom subject to the king of England or to the English, we would strive to drive him out as our enemy and a subverter of his own rights and ours. And we would make some other man who was able to defend us our king. For as as long as but a hundred of us remain alive, we shall never on any conditions be subjected to English rule. It is in truth not for glory nor for riches, nor honours that we fight, but for freedom alone, which no honest man gives up except with his life. Now, everyone remembers the as long as but a hundred of us remain bit of the declaration of our Broth. There are countless shite tattoos out there that contain that passage. But it is the bit that precedes that. This idea that the king is replaceable, that's the really important bit of the declaration of our Broth. This is the first time in European history that we have a clear articulation of the view that the king is as answerable to his subjects as they are to him. The Declaration of Arbroath is not just one of the earliest representations of nationalism, but also of constitutionalism. It's why it's so easy to see how the Declaration of Arbroath so heavily influenced the American Declaration of Independence. And it highlights a very different relationship with the monarchy in Scotland compared to England. This this idea of elected kingship, the idea that the monarch can and will be replaced, it dates back to the Scots and the Picts. Scottish monarchs have never exerted anything like the kind of power that their English counterparts have, and that's mainly in part due to the clan system. And this relationship with the monarchy in Scotland it would lead to civil war in the seventeenth century when the English king or the king of England and Scotland, I should say, Charles I, he wanted to exert more control over the church in Scotland. Charles I was unwilling to accept the Scottish view that the king is, is just another subject in the eyes of God and his need for greater influence and control over the church would lead to war. Basically... We've never really given that much of a fuck about the monarchy here in Scotland. It's why it's why English people put like pictures of the Queen and Wills and Kate and all that kind of pish on on plates and dish towels and all that. Well, here in Scotland, you know, we just prefer to have pictures of Highland coups on those things, you know? Robert Bruce would make another significant step towards parliamentary democracy later in his reign with the introduction of the Three Estates. Now, before Robert Bruce's reign, medieval kings in Scotland, they would rule by means of a small group of nobles, the community of the realm, as I've already mentioned in previous podcasts, a kind of version of a privy council who would then take policies to a larger general council made up of noblemen, and bishops and representatives of the church. But in 1326, Robert the Bruce, he asked for more representation from each of Scotland's royal boroughs to be present at meetings of the General Council. This was the third estate and the first time that Burgesses were able to attend the parliament. It meant that local boroughs' needs were better represented, and it was a significant development in the Scottish Parliament. The same Scottish Parliament that the new Scottish Conservative leader, Douglas Ross, would like to see powers removed from, and the same Scottish Parliament his party voted against even existing, and the same Scottish Parliament whom the ex-Conservative leader, Ruth Davidson, is leaving to take up a lordship in the House of Lords in London an elected chamber that is less democratic than the three estates introduced by Robert the Bruce in 1326. We still have less democracy in London in the 21st century than Robert the Bruce introduced in the 14th century. The Pope's reply to the declaration of Arbroath, it was addressed to that illustrious man, Robert, who assumes the title and position of King of Scotland. Um, So a step in the right direction, but not quite what Robert Bruce was hoping for. Actually, reminds me a wee bit of a time I, I got a brand new MP3 player and I gave it to a lassie that I fancied in school. Impressed as she was, it made fuck all difference. I mean, Robert the Bruce, he was basically he was seeing the Pope, but they were still not exclusive, you know. And in his reply to Robert the Bruce. The Pope said that he would exhort the English to make peace, but peace between England and Scotland, it was unlikely, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be achieved for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, it wouldn't be achieved until the reign of Andy Murray, when we let him be British for a wee bit just to keep the English happy, you know. And so peace talks that were held in April 1321, but it was at the behest that England would retain suzerainty over Scotland. And Scotland it wasn't willing to accept any kind of Devo Max pish. It was unwilling to settle for anything less than independence with Robert Bruce, the recognised King of Scotland. And so when the truce with England came to an end, when it ran out in 1321, Robert the Bruce, he went straight back to raiding Northern England, trying to kind of... ...force Edward II's hand and get him to recognise him as the King of Scotland. Robert Bruce's position, it was strengthening all the time. In 1322, Edward II's brother-in-law, Charles IV, he became the King of France. And Charles IV, he disliked Edward II pretty strongly. He was angered by Edward's poor treatment of his sister, Edward's wife, Isabella. And it was this resentment that ignited fresh conflict between England and France... And a renewal of the old alliance with the Treaty of Corbet in 1326. And so Scotland now had renewed French support. And a few years earlier, in 1324, the Pope the Pope, recognised Robert Bruce as King of Scotland, although his excommunication and thus kind of papal prohibition of Scotland still stood. It's a bit like how Arsenal accept that Mesut Ozil is a really good football player, but they still just won't let him play, you know? But still, things, they were moving in the right direction for Robert Bruce. And as Robert the Bruce prospered, things lurched from bad to worse for Edward II. In 1326, his wife Isabella went to France with their son Prince Edward to pay homage to Charles IV for lands in Gascony. But Isabella, she refused to return to home to England despite the threat of a minute more. Instead, she took a lover, Sir Roger Mortimer of Wigmore, an enemy of Edwards, living in exile in France. And Isabella and Roger, they raised an invasion force and in September 1326, they descended upon London. The English army it quickly declared for Isabella and in a, in, in a moment, any support that Edward II had had crumbled away. It is said that in a desperate last-minute attempt to save his kingdom, Edward II wrote to Robert Bruce, promising him independence and independence, sorry, and a large part of northern England in return for his assistance in fighting. Isabella for- Isabella's forces. Now if such a letter had ever been written it was written too late because Edward he was captured in Wales in November 1326 and he was formally deposed in January 1327. His 15-year-old son Edward was crowned Edward III on the 1st of February 1327 at Westminster Abbey. And although at only 15 years old he technically had control of the kingdom he was heavily influenced and pretty much under the thumb of Isabella and Roger. A change of king in England that had little effect on English relations with Scotland. Robert Bruce, he continued his northern raids and on the day of Edward III's coronation, he came very close to taking Norham Castle, the English side of the Tweed, near Berwick, in a daring night-time raid that was led by James Douglas. The young king, he marched north with an army to try and deal with the Scots' raids into the north of his kingdom, but the Scots' guerrilla tactics, they terrified the English forces. Bruce's men, they could appear and then suddenly disappear in a moment, just like an ex an sliding into your DMs or Gordon Brown when the Unionists get, you know, really, really desperate. And in a daring raid led by James Douglas once again, the Scots infiltrated the English encampment at Stanhope Park in Weardale, and they they almost managed to snatch the young king, Edward III. And it was enough of a close call to get the English forces to abandon their campaign and return to London. In the autumn of 1327, the deposed king, Edward II, he died of natural causes. Well, I mean, officially at least. In truth, Isabella and Roger Mortimer had him murdered by means of a red-hot poker shoved up his arse, which, if that is what is considered natural causes, then it certainly does make me rethink my grandparents' deaths. Jesus Christ. Now, the rumours of Edward's brutal murder spread quickly, and public opinion it very quickly turned against Isabella and Roger. When they tried to raise another expedition to go north in 1327, the English Parliament refused to grant the necessary funds. And so, in October 1327, the English sent peace envoys to Scotland to negotiate a peace. And after negotiating all All winter, a peace treaty was finally reached and signed on the 17th of March 1328 at Holyrood in Edinburgh, and it was ratified by the English in Northampton on the 3rd of May 1328. Now, the Treaty of Edinburgh stroke Northampton it accepted Scotland's independence and recognised Robert Bruce as the rightful king of Scotland. And as part of the treaty, the Stone of Destiny taken by Edward I in 1296 was supposed to be returned to Scotland, but it never was. Instead, the English kept hold of it for another 700 years, and we eventually got it back in 1996. So, you know, Greece, do you know what? You've only got, what, another 500 years to wait before they give you back the stuff that they stole? It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Now, the Treaty of Edinburgh was the culmination of 22 arduous years' work for Robert Bruce. And the pact was sealed with a marriage between Bruce's son, four-year-old David, and Edward III's seven-year-old sister Joan. Now, David was born in 1324, and he was seen as something of a, a bit of a miracle child. Nobody knew if the Queen Elizabeth the Berg was still capable of childbearing after spending so long in captivity in England. It took her ten years after release to give birth to David in thirteen twenty four. And although David's birth settled the question of Scottish succession, David was born late into Robert Bruce's reign, and at the time of the signing of the Treaty of Edinburgh, Robert the Bruce was seriously ill in Holyrood Palace. It meant that the throne would almost certainly now be succeeded by a minor Robert Bruce was suffering from a disfiguring skin disease now chroniclers have said that it was leprosy and it's a bit of a myth that Robert Bruce he died of leprosy you see the English chroniclers they were keen to say that Robert the Bruce was suffering from leprosy as this was about the worst thing that you could possibly say about someone at the time it was very much the 14th century c word you know Now, Bruce's father, he had died of leprosy, but Bruce, he almost certainly didn't have leprosy, because if he had leprosy, he wouldn't have been able to drink from the local well, he wouldn't be able to attend mass or attend parliaments, and he did all of these things. You know, unless, of course, he was, you know, he was like an Aberdeen football player and he didn't give two fucks about infecting other people, then I suppose it's possible that, you know, he might just have had it. Now, David and Joan, they were married in Berwick in July 1328, and neither Edward III or Robert the Bruce attended. And it's not known whether Robert the Bruce was too ill to attend, or if he just refused to attend because, you know, Edward III III had snubbed the event. Or, I don't know, maybe they just didn't want to go to the wedding of a child. Do you know what I mean? Like, not all royals are as keen on minors as Prince Andrew is, you know? Finally, In October 1328, the Pope lifted Robert Bruce's excommunication, the final piece in the jigsaw, the culmination of Robert Bruce's life work. He was now the recognised king of an independent kingdom. And it all looked so incredibly unlikely in 1304 when Edward I had Scotland conquered. Robert the Bruce's story is is one of perseverance and is one that particularly resonates with Scottish people. No matter how bad things got for Robert Bruce, he persevered. There was 24 years between Edward I conquering Scotland and, despite the terrible lows, the recognition of Robert Bruce as king of an independent nation. And come the next World Cup, it will also be 24 years since Scotland last qualified for a major tournament, although if there is one thing even more unlikely than the redemption of Scotland's greatest king, it is the redemption of its football team, I can assure you that. Robert the Bruce, he died at his country manor in Cardross on the 7th of June, 1329, aged 55 years old. Robert Bruce's body was buried in Dunfermline Abbey, but the location of the tomb was lost as the old abbey fell into disrepair over the centuries and its royal tombs destroyed in the Reformation. The tomb of Robert Bruce was rediscovered in 1818, coincidentally just weeks after the rediscovery of the Scottish crown jewels in a vault in Edinburgh Castle, and both events led to a surge in Scottish patriotism and the rebuilding of Dunfermline Abbey. Now the skeleton discovered in 1818 was definitely that of Robert Bruce because the breastbone had been cut. This is proof that it was Robert Bruce because Bruce's dying wish was that his heart be removed and taken to the Holy Land. Obedient to the king's dying wish was his right-hand man James Douglas, who took Bruce's embalmed heart on crusade in 1330. But since there was no crusades going on at the time, the nearest Muslims that Douglas could find to pick a fight with were the Moors in the south of Spain. And facing his imminent death, James Douglas he took Bruce's embalmed heart and he threw it in front of his charging horse, shouting, "Onward, brave heart!" Words that have echoed through the ages of Scottish history, so much so, they inspired a film about the completely wrong Scottish patriot, which goes, to, which goes to show just how incredibly inaccurate that film is, even the title is wrong. Now, James Douglas's body was returned to Scotland, along with the King's Heart, which was buried in Melrose Abbey, as per his, as per his request. An embalmed heart contained within a lead casket was dug up by archaeologists in 1996, and it contained a note. The enclosed leaden casket containing a heart was found beneath the chapter house floor in March 1921. Evidently, when they had dug up and reburied the heart in 1921, they had actually, you know, they had forgotten to actually mark where they had reburied the bloody thing. And so the heart was reburied in 1998. But listen, like hearts going up and down all the time. That's perfectly natural. That's just what hearts do, you know. It was reburied in 1998 in a ceremony at Melrose Abbey. And the first minister of Scotland at the time, Donald Dewar, he said of Robert Bruce, Bruce gave definition to the Scottish crown and the country he ruled. He was himself one of the great leaders of our history. And more than that, he shaped the relationship between Scots and their leaders. He fought to protect his people, not to vanquish their enemies. And I think that's pretty solid, nice wee roundup of the Robert the Bruce story to end on right there. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so, so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. If this is the first episode that you've listened to, then go back and check out some of the other ones. It's the same shite. If you like this one, you'll like the same. You'll like the rest as well. Um, You can support the podcast by going on to buymeacoffee or patreon.com where you can give me a wee kind of, you can buy me the equivalent of a cup of coffee or you can become a patron of the podcast and you can buy me the equivalent of a cup of coffee every month. It's all massively, massively appreciated. Um, I'm on there at Montebank History of Scotland. Uh, please give me a follow on social media as well. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and all the usual platforms at Montebank Tours. And what I try to do is each week I try to raise enough money to send someone deserving a bottle of whiskey. So it can be like a, an NHS worker, a frontline worker, a patient parent, or just a thoroughly sound person. Someone who deserves a nice bottle of whiskey. Um, and so you can nominate someone to receive that bottle of whiskey by leaving comments on my Patreon or buying me a coffee account or my social media, you can send me an email, a DM, whatever. And what I do is I just pick one at random, basically. And each week I try and match with what I, match what I've been talking about in the podcast with a malt whiskey from Scotland. And this week I'm going to match uh, the final part of Robert the Bruce, or the the final part of the Robert the Bruce story, with the Glenfiddich, which I think is is one of Scotland's most iconic whiskies. It's Instantly recognisable in its kind of green triangle ball, as is Robert the Bruce's image, completely instantly recognisable. But more important than that is the story behind Glenfiddich. You see, Glenfiddich, in the 1960s, in 1964, the launch of their eight-year-old malt saved an industry because malt whiskey in Scotland at that point had basically died a death. No one in Scotland was drinking malt whiskeys. It was all blended whiskey. And the launch of Glenn 8-year-old, which they later changed to their 12-year-old, basically restarted an industry which is worth, you know, millions and millions now to Scotland. So it, you it could be argued that Glenn Fiddich saved a nation in the same way that Robert the Bruce did. Instantly recognisable and incredibly important for Scotland's story, um, Glenn Fiddich and Robert the Bruce. It's a lovely, subtle, dry, incredibly accessible malt, which you'll enjoy a lot. Uh, so that's it, folks. Thank you so, so much. Thanks again for listening, and uh, I hope to see you all next time. Cheers now. Bye-bye.